You could trace the evolution of journalism through his career arc over the last 35 or so years as he's moved from print to broadcast to online and podcasting, from employer-supported to audience-funded content. And along the way, he broke one of the biggest stories in pop music history. Every system in this city failed for 30 years to uh, protect these young black girls. Jim DeRogatis spent 15 years as the Chicago Sun-Times pop music critic. That's a disappearing species in the newspaper business nowadays. Along the way, he became co-host with his former Tribune rival, Greg Cott, of the show Sound Opinions. Heard on public radio stations across the country and via podcast now around the world. And for seven years, by the way, it aired on my alma mater, WXRT. He's an associate professor at Columbia College Chicago and the author of 10 books about music, including his most recent, Soulless, The Case Against R. Kelly. I'm Charlie Meyerson with Rivet 360 and ChicagoPublicSquare.com. And this is Chicago Media Talks, a show in which people in Chicago media talk about Chicago media. We're recording this on Clubhouse before turning it into a podcast. But right now, here's my co-host, my friend, and Rivet360 colleague, journalism strategist, Sheila Solomon. Jim, your bio says you were born the year the Beatles arrived in America and that you began voicing your opinions about rock and roll shortly thereafter. Tell us about your childhood. Yeah, <laughs> yeah my mom said I uh, used to like to sit in the high chair and uh, gnaw on my dad's steak bones. That was like a favorite story she loved to tell. Um, I, yes, I guess I've, I've had a bit of the bulldog in me from the beginning. Um, you know, my dad died when I was young, five uh, in Jersey City. And uh, my mom was uh, struggling as a single mom with me and my brother. Uh, you know, we had some government cheese coming in and the Social Security uh, death benefit. And uh, my dad left behind about a dozen vinyl albums. My mom never had any interest in music. Uh, my brother didn't. Um, and these were pretty awful albums, you know, the soundtrack to Camelot on Broadway and Oliver. Uh, but there was a Frankie Lane record. You know, this this guy is born uh, Paolo Lovecchio on the west side of Chicago, right? And he becomes Frankie Lane, hell-bent for leather, rawhide, you know, the crooning cowboy. I just love that story. Mm. Apparently, you know, he went to Lane Tech, so he took Lane as his name. Uh, and uh, I don't know, something about that uh, round about age four or five uh, got me fascinated in music. So how'd you begin writing about it? Um... I remember asking my mom for a uh, student model Smith Corona roundabout uh, typewriter, roundabout the fourth grade, and I just wrote about music. I wrote science fiction stories. I, I have a shoebox full of rejection letters from uh, Isaac Asimov's science fiction anthology. Uh, and the editor was very nice in saying this, this story is a little too predictable. And this is like when I was 12, which is kind of funny. <laughs> uh, I just, I just always remember uh, writing and always remember listening. And not playing? Were you playing any music? I started playing the drums as a freshman in high school. There were two buddies who said, uh, you know, we're going to form a band. And uh, one of them uh, owned but couldn't play a bass and the other owned but couldn't play uh, guitar. And so I guess that that made me the drummer. You know, the, the wonderful thing about drumming is uh, there's all these, uh, you know, marching snare and jazz techniques. Uh, and they all have ridiculously onomatopoeic names, you know, Flam and Ratamacue and Paradiddle. And you'd sit there and go left, left, right. Right, right, left, right, right, left, 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 right. You know, I had nothing to do. I'm frustrated in my bedroom and no girlfriends in sight. I'm a fat nerd uh, in Jersey City. And so I just sat in the, you know, basement paradiddling my heart away. The early part of your career, Jim, was was focused on, on print, on, on text. Walk us through how you eventually found yourself on the radio. Well, I, I still think I'm a writer. I mean, I guess far more people, to the extent that anybody knows my name, probably know it, knows it today from uh, Sound Opinions. But, you know, to me, um, the radio show was always an outgrowth of the writing. And I think Greg Cott, my partner for the last, 
Oh, geez, we're at 16 years on public radio with seven years on XRT, so 20 plus years. Um, Greg would say first, too. I, I'm a writer, first and foremost. Um, but, you know, I, I went to the Sun-Times uh, because Roger Ebert was a huge hero. And uh, I thought that what he did with Gene Siskel, bringing high-level intellectual talk about cinema to a very populist format uh, that was fun, that was engaging, that was combative, uh, that offered two sides. Even when they both agreed, there were two different reasons that they loved a movie or vice versa if they hated it. Um, I thought that was brilliant. I thought it, was, it should always have been done with music. Uh, and it wasn't. It seemed natural to me. And so, you know, Sound Opinions was was Stone Cold, a, a carbon copy of Siskel and Ebert. Um and yeah, that and also, you know, when I was in college and just after college, there was a fanzine that had originated that was started by a young woman uh, who went to journalism school at Northwestern, uh, the same class as Steve Albini, the Chicago producer. And uh, she started a fanzine called Matter. Why? Because the music did, right? And uh, Matter had a really unique approach to its record review section. Uh, this is the heyday of indie rock in the 80s and an important record, quote-unquote important to us, uh, by the replacements or Husker Du would come out. And there'd be one lead review of about 650 words. And then three or four of her other critics would each weigh in with a shorter review of 250 words. So you had this virtual roundtable on any important piece of art that had four or five voices, um, you know, discussing it from different angles. And this was, you know, this is... 1986, 84, uh, well before the internet. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, I've never understood why there isn't more of that on the internet, given that that is the natural forum. I mean, the most successful startup, uh, since Rolling Stone was Pitchfork, originated in, uh, Minneapolis, but soon came to Chicago. And, you know, not only did they not have multiple critics weighing in on things, they had, uh, no comment section. They didn't care what anybody else thought. It was all about the corporate branding of Pitchfork gives this record 7.5 on its 10-point scale. I mean, I've always thought, and this comes from Ebert and my other great critical hero, Lester Bangs, uh, that, that uh, good criticism is a conversation between people who are passionate about the art. There is no wrong. There is no right. It is not ever one person's opinion. Um, it is it is people discussing this art and trading ideas. And by doing that, we get to know the art better. But also we get to know each other because we are each individuals. If every one of us, when the world is fully reopened, goes down to the Art Institute and stands in front of Nighthawks by Edward Hopper, and there's 10 of us, we're going to see 10 different paintings because we're 10 different people. And the joy of criticism is that conversation between 10 people or you know, thousands on the radio and podcast. Coming up, how Jim DeRogatis broke one of the biggest stories in pop music history. Chicago Media Talks is sponsored by Sun Fun U Mediterranean Voyages. When you need a break from all the news and from the windy city itself, join Sun Fun U for a week yachting through the Mediterranean, learning history of the region, and playing in the sea. To make trouble seem a world away, visit Sun Fun U and sign up for a voyage this summer. The criminal case against R. Kelly, who's maybe most famous for the song I Believe I Can Fly in the original Space Jam movie, is now almost old enough to drink. It's older than many of your Columbia College students, Jim. Yeah. How do you bring people up to speed if they weren't even born in the year 2000, if they don't even remember that song well, his saturation into pop culture is such that I really don't have much problem uh, uh, telling people who R. Kelly is. I mean, when I teach a class called Music and Media in Chicago, I do have to explain who Bo Diddley was, you know, uh, or, or uh, uh, Shaka Khan, you know. <laughs> but R. Kelly, you got to remember, these kids were, uh, you know, in, in diapers in the playpen uh, watching Space Jam, uh, which, you know, I believe I can fly with power. That. Um, so, so people know R. Kelly. Um, I think to put it in perspective, 
in popular music, there has been a long and ignoble history uh, of men treating women badly since well before the Bobby Soxers of the Sinatra era to last week. And uh, in that long and sad, hateful context, no one has ever faced as many federal charges as Robert Sylvester Kelly. If convicted on everything in the two federal cases, one in Brooklyn, one in Chicago, he faces 195 years in jail. And, you know, given this long history of men uh, treating women very badly, it's uh, it's a singular accomplishment, uh, that bad a record. Uh, you know, the, I never wanted to write Soulless, my book about Kelly. I was convinced by an agent who, who said this is an important Me Too story and an editor who, you know, chance would have at Small World, uh, went to the high school in Oak Park uh, that the girl uh, on the first videotape attended. Um, I don't think if there were, was that personal connection, it, it would have ever been published. I, I wrote it because Chicago failed. It wasn't R. Kelly as predator. I mean, that was a huge part of it. But every system in this city, the courts, the cops, despite some notable exceptions, uh, the music industry, the black church, uh, the school system, Every system in this city failed for 30 years, victim number one's 1991, to uh, protect these young black girls. And, and this gets repeated a lot. It is not me saying it. It is me from hundreds of interviews for 15 years, 20 years, um, with young black women. Nobody matters less in our society than young black women. Uh, and, and it was uh, open an open secret, uh, you know, to that list, I have to add that journalism failed. Um, you know, it was a very lonely beat uh, of me and Abdon Palish, the court reporter. I had to teach him who Curtis Mayfield was. He was so clueless about music. And that great columnist, Mary Mitchell, who had our back when we were being branded as tearing down a beloved black superstar. She was saying, what you are missing black community of Chicago is the dozens of victims my colleagues are detailing who are young black women. Um, you know, uh, yeah, it's a sad and pathetic story that, uh, that almost was bad enough to, you know, uh, take away my love of music. Uh, and then I think, you know, about about what music can accomplish. I think of Mavis Staples and her sisters and her brother and dad walking with Dr. King or uh, singing with Mahalia Jackson, you know, for, for Dr. King. You know, that, that new Summer of Soul movie by Questlove. Oh, my God. Um, you know, I think about what music can do. But I also realize that there's a, a flip side. Because not only did people know and not care while Kelly was generating such income, $100 million records sold um there's a percentage of that audience that knew and loved him because of that behavior he never made a secret of it the album he produced for Aaliyah way back in 1994 when he began sexual uh encounters uh illegal sexual encounters with her she was 15 he called it age ain't nothing but a number it was an open secret and I think you know his brother put it best to me his half-brother he said you know my brother was always talking to some sick mfers who were on his level which is a horrifying thought. So exactly how did you break this story? It was dumb luck, Sheila. <laughs> I, um, you know, I had heard R. Kelly likes them young quotes around that, just like every other, uh, everyone else in the music scene in Chicago. And I uh, had reviewed TP2.com, his fifth album, and I noted that uh, a tired criticism, uh, it wasn't original, that, you know, 
R&B and soul traditionally have had this uh, magical way of mixing the sacred and the profane, uh, you know, hot and horny between the sheets on Saturday night and praying to the Lord in church on Sunday morning, and that the greats, Marvin Gaye and Al Green and Prince, uh, had always struck that mystical balance Whereas with Kelly, it was this wild dichotomy between the two extremes. And he had yet to make a brilliant album on the level of those heroes uh, because he had yet to find that midspace. And that prompted a fax. It was a single page letter that said, Dear Mr. Dear Goddess, you compared R. Kelly to Marvin Gaye. Well, Marvin had his problems, but they're nothing like Robert's. Robert's problem is young girls. And uh, I'll confess, Sheila, I tossed it in the slush pile, the, the, the huge wire basket of press releases I'd never read and uh, uh, bios that I would throw out someday. And uh, I went home and I had Thanksgiving. And, you know, the, the entire holiday weekend, uh, a couple of things that I'd read quickly in that fax gnawed at me. There was a level of specificity and detail, including a Polish cop's name. You can call uh, Chicago uh, Sex Crimes Unit. They've been investigating him for two years. So something bothered me. Uh, all those things bothered me. I went back in to the office on Monday morning and I called CPD and I spelled the Polish sergeant's name off of this fax. And um, very bothered uh, a woman who answered the phone said, ah, nobody here by that name. And I almost hung up. And then I said, well, yeah, all right, you know, you know, is there anybody with a similar Polish surnames in sex crime? And she goes, oh, hang on. And this sergeant answers the phone, Chyna uh, Huzuski, uh, <laughs> sex crimes. And I said, hey, I'm from the Sun-Times. I'm calling about your investigation into R. Kelly. And she says, dramatic pauses included. Oh, I was wondering how long it would be before somebody called about that. I can't talk to you and hung up. And then I went, you know, I was in the low rent features section. You know, I was next to Denise O'Neill, who put the comics and the horoscopes together. You know, it's like, like, uh, you know, Ebert never came to the office, right? He came once a year, gave everybody a uh, movie of the day calendar. And, uh, you know, Hetty Weiss and Rob Feeder, they had offices. I was a pop music critic. I had a desk by horoscopes. So I went into the city room and I, I talked to Don Hainer and I said, you know, I, I think there's something here. And he read the facts and he said, look, uh, it mentions a lawsuit that was filed that was never reported. Kind of hard to believe there'd be a lawsuit about underage sex against this guy who's a big deal and nobody wrote about it. But Abdon Palish can check down the courthouse. And that started our journey. And so for six weeks, night and day, uh, we, we worked on the first story that ran just before Christmas. 1999 and we thought All right, we nailed this guy we got some papers handed to us that had been sealed by the court in uh, with the annulment of the marriage to Aaliyah uh, we didn't talk to the girl who filed the first lawsuit I never talked to her until just before the book came out um, you know so 20 years later uh, but we talked to everybody on her witness list and we talked to a lot of people in the Chicago music we thought we nailed him and instead, we were vilified by every black radio station in Chicago, uh, you know, by the black community, by the black church. Uh, you know, he was always very generous to Operation Push. And so James Meeks was his personal spiritual advisor. Um, it had a resounding, you know, thud, you know, when it was picked up by anyone else. The Tribune never forwarded a word of our reporting. Um when it was picked up by anybody else, it was the Sun-Times is reporting that a nut, nut graph that we agonized over for weeks. Uh, you know, superstar R. Kelly has consistently abused his position of fame and power to pursue illegal underage sexual relations with girls. Um, and, uh, you know, nothing happened. And it was this all gets compressed in the surviving R. Kelly kind of, uh, you know, lifetime tv version of it but uh you know it was a year and a half later that the videotape of him 
having sexual relations with a 14-year-old high school girl and urinating in her mouth. That that showed up in my mailbox at home. I was living on the northwest side. And uh, I was listed, you know, you want to be a good journalist, you got to be accessible to people. I was working at home. I had just finished transcribing an interview with Alicia Keys. You know, phone rings, go to your mailbox, and there was the 26-minute, 39-second videotape. And that didn't do it either. <laughs> I was acquitted. That video over eventually caused some legal complications for you, some some legal trials, so to speak. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, Dick Devine, then the state's attorney, uh, he blew that case. They did not charge Kelly with statutory rape. They did not uh, investigate criminal charges that could have come from the five civil lawsuits filed against Kelly. By that point, it took six and a half years to go to trial. It broke every record in Cook County for the amount of time between indictment and trial. He was indicted only for making child pornography. We now know, thanks to the federal charges out of Illinois and Brooklyn, that, you know, there was witness intimidation. There was bribery, uh, witness tampering. Uh, they operated, you know, he's charged with running a criminal enterprise uh, like a drug lord or a mafia boss that had one purpose to enable him to continue to generate vast sums of money by crafting hits while uh, keeping him happy with underage sexual relations. And uh, it's just an extraordinary case uh, uh, that, that the feds have made. Um, but, you know, we didn't know any of this at the time, and I was compelled to testify. Judge Vincent Gaughan, uh, a man for whom I have nothing but contempt, uh, you know, uh, overrode uh, the Illinois State Shield Law, the, 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 the Reporters Privilege Act, the implied uh, reporters' uh, protections of the U.S. Constitution, and forced me to take the stand. And I had to take the Fifth Amendment like a lowly mobster from New Jersey, the kind of guys I started out writing about when I was a news reporter at the start of my career, uh, because I would not, you know, were I to answer a single question, including my name on the stand, I risked uh, you have to answer everything. And, uh, you know, I did not want to name any of the incredibly brave. Oh, all of this makes me sound uh, like I was heroic. I was not. You know, I wanted to protect the young women who did the hardest thing anyone could possibly do, which is to rip out their soul and lay it bare in front of a fat white rock critic. OK, and, and tell me about their sexual abuse at the hand of a man who is beloved and powerful and rich and she is being demonized by her community her church her family and uh she is telling the truth and and that's the very best reason you give someone uh anonymity as a source uh, a whistleblower you know and so i was i was very aggrieved that the Chicago press corps did not see how important it was that that judge Gohan trampled on a reporter's rights um you know, and, and protections, you know, in fact, I had to call Anne-Marie Lipinski because the Tribune said, you know, reporter takes the fifth. And in fact, what I did on the stand in response to a couple dozen questions was say, you know, on the advice of counsel, your honor, uh, and be pursuant to my fifth and first amendment protections. And Damon Dunn, the media attorney for the Sun-Times, really hugely respected in, in that world of first amendment cases, uh, you know, had said, you, Gone is a hothead. You better not mention the First Amendment because he might throw you in jail. And I said, well, you know, Damon, I, we've talked about this. And, you know, I, 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 I understand why I'm taking the Fifth Amendment, but I'm not going to uncouple it from the first. So that that Tribune headline really hurt that day. And you know, there was a, a rare correction in the Tribune the next day. Um but it took me calling Anne Marie Lipinski. And, you know, this, this Sheila, you know, your old role at the Tribune is, is, uh, one of the things that always, uh, fascinated me is because this is music, uh, it can also be news. 
right? And we've seen this with some sports stories, too, right? When a superstar athlete has a notorious gambling problem. But ain't nobody writing about that, right? Because we just want to worship him as the G-O-A-T or whatever it is, right? And, um, you know, it's entertainment, right? It's not news. And yet it is news. uh, And it is important. And Yet, I think as journalistic institutions, we sometimes trivialize things that are happening in the realm of entertainment. Let, let me give you an example. In, in late June, in the Netherlands, there was a music festival, two days, 20,000 people attended. It is breaking in the last two days that 5,000 of those people are now testing positive for covid then there was the same time period in Grand Junction, Colorado, uh, the uh, Country Jam, Colorado. Three days, 24,000 people, and the same percentage, 5% of the attendees are now testing positive for COVID. This makes sense. The vaccine is 95% effective, right? Well, 5%, you know, we are 10 days away from Mayor Lightfoot inexplicably welcoming 100,000 people a day for four days to Grant Park for Lollapalooza, this corporate music festival. And, you know, what if we have 5% of those 100,000 test positive for COVID, we're going to have to shut down Chicago again. Why is this not the lead story on every broadcast and newspaper front page right now? I don't know. That gets me upset. Sorry. Jim, I'm wondering how our Kelly fans react to you now when they see you out. Well, I haven't seen anybody in in a year and a half. <laughs> the world shut down. <laughs> um, you know, the, the level of hate on social media has decreased somewhat, although, it, you know, it's still there. And even at its worst, what I got, you know, pales in comparison to what the women who spoke to me and appeared in Surviving R. Kelly ever got. Um, I don't know. I think it's all going to kick into gear again if this trial starts as scheduled in Brooklyn in late August. We shall see. Uh, There is a shocking amount of people who still believe he did nothing wrong. Uh, The same can be said of Bill Cosby. You know, the same can be said of Woody Allen. And uh, I don't think the Me Too fight is over any more than the Black Lives Matter fight is over. Jim, you and Greg Cott took Sound Opinions independent of WBEZ Radio in Chicago last year. How did that happen, and how's it going? Well, you know, I'm I'm really proud to say that in the middle of the end of the world and a financial crisis, uh, we've uh, made it possible for our two longtime producers, uh, Alex uh, Claiborne. She'd been with... Uh, uh, with us at BEZ for six years. And uh, Andrew Gill had been there for 16 years and, and the last two of those with us. You know, they were laid off along with me and Greg. Uh, we've got them making more than they made at BEZ for consideration of the fact that they have to self-insure through ACA. Thank you, Obamacare. Um, but yeah, that's a good trick to pull off in the middle of the end of the world. Are me and Greg getting paid? Like, I, I, I don't know. Are you and Sheila? <laughs> But, you know, that was not, you know, that was not a voluntary split. Uh, BEZ, like many businesses, were running around in a sheer panic a year ago this time uh, that the world was ending. And, you know, despite the show having a great cornerstone sponsor in Goose Island Beer and uh, a, a very generous grant that is continuing from the Goldschmidt Foundation. I mean, we were not costing BEZ money. We were not making them a lot of money. Um, but, you know, we were low lying fruit. Let's get rid of the rock talk show. And, and instead of any reporters. And, and I, you know, I agree with that. I mean, it's an important time to keep the newsroom up. But uh, I think it was a bad decision. And I guess that's borne out by the fact that here we are and we're we're still on 150 stations across the public radio spectrum. And, you know, we get uh, uh, 75,000 downloads for each episode of the podcast. Uh, we're doing OK. Lift the curtain a bit and and tell us about that transition to something I've done myself at ChicagoPublicSquare.com, soliciting audience support directly. How has that gone? How did you launch it? What do you think about that as a model for 
journalists and communicators in the 21st century? Well, I always said, often during pledge drive time, uh, uh, you know, I mean, public uh, radio was ahead of the curve in this uh Patreon, uh, Substack support, uh, you know, support us if you think we bring you something of worth model, right? You know, uh, we are supported by listeners. Uh, thank you for keeping it coming, you know, whether it's a dollar a month or, or, you know, whether you can give a thousand dollars a month, right? You know, I mean, I think that this model for, uh, uh, journalism starts with public radio stations across the country. And so our listeners have been supportive and Goose Island stuck with us and the Goldschmidt Foundation and now we have additional advertising coming in. Uh, that That's the weirdest part, right? Because podcasts right now are super um you know, they're the hot thing, right? So they're cheap for, you know, weird uh, but hip uh, companies to advertise, you know, and Greg and I have to look at each other from the business point of view. It's like, well, that would be $1,400. On the other hand, this is a male grooming product that is designed to help you shave your pubic region. I ain't going to read that. And Cot's like, I ain't going to read that. And uh, all right. Well, okay. Well, we're not. There. We got to have some standards here. <laughs> That's a little weird. Hey, Jim. This is producer Jesse. I wanted to ask a question about fair use, oh. and especially with the next generation of music critics in mind. Do you have any thoughts for them? Advice? Um, because it can be a kind of a tricky area yeah you know i hate as a journalist to say i'd rather not comment on anything this has notoriously gotten me in trouble in the past uh, look up hootie gate if you're so inclined and in my time at rolling stone um you know look it's the wild west out there it is my contention that podcast platforms stitcher spotify amazon apple ought to be having licenses with BMI, ASCAP, and CSAC the way that radio stations do. So if we play even only a portion of a song, 40 or 50 seconds, on the radio show on 150 stations, each one of those stations has uh, contracts with the rights organizations, right? Uh, the podcaster in her basement uh, is not going to be able to get BMI, ASCAP, CSAC licensing or afford them. Or is she going to be able to contact and get permission for every song she wants to use? There are myths out there. If you're under 20 or 30 seconds, you're okay. Uh, in fact, uh, some big, evil, despicable, vile corporations, hello, UMG, I'm looking at you, contend there is no such thing as fair use. Zero seconds of any copyrighted work are allowable, even if you are using them for education, criticism, or journalism. Now, eventually, uh, this is going to get to some sort of uh, federal court battle. Uh, it sure shouldn't be sound opinions. I mentioned that Cotton and I are barely getting paid, right? Uh, maybe it'll be Joe Rogan, right? Or somebody like that. But, you know, the fact is that uh, podcasts are not allowed to use music, according to some of the biggest music companies in the world, period. Even if you are going to do an hour-long discussion of the making of Carol King's Tapestry, where you've interviewed her co-songwriters and the musicians and are talking uh, critically about the songs and journalistically about that album's accomplishments, you know, the corporation that uh, controls Carol King's rights is going to say, no, tough luck, you can't use the music. So that's uh, that's troublesome right now. It's not resolved. Uh, you know, Facebook just began uh, inviting people to host their podcasts on Facebook, but they've got an algorithmic bot that if it detects anything over 30 seconds worth of music, doesn't matter if I made the music in my basement, put it on my podcast, it just kicks that podcast off of Facebook. So it, it, it's a mess right now. Somebody ought to resolve it. It ain't going to be sound opinions. Unless, like, you know, Bill Gates wants to give us a grant to fix it. Too many print publications are no longer regularly covering the arts. Yeah. What do you think's ahead for music criticism? 
Well, you know, Sheila, it's it's gone uh, into the realm of the indie musician or, you know, the poet. I mean, we still have uh, uh, a dozen or two dozen uh, poetry uh, uh, MFA students at Columbia College every year. You know, they don't graduate expecting to get a job as a poet. <laughs> They don't exist, right? Um, you know, but that is your passion and that is your love. And, you know, uh, people who, who make music independently can just as soon imagine not eating or breathing as not making their music. It's sad to think of criticism in that same realm, but this is true across the arts. I mean, we have no full-time dance critic anywhere in Chicago and no full-time, uh, well, Lior Galil at The Reader. But, you know, full-time and The Reader salary is, is, I don't know if those two things are accurate in the same sentence. Uh, you know, how can the Tribune not have a full-time, uh, it hasn't had a full-time TV critic since Maureen Ryan. That's going back almost a decade. You know, it's just ridiculous. Uh, again, for two reasons. I mean, you know, understanding uh, the arts is is understanding our world, you know. And number two, you know, important stuff happens in the art realm. You know, R. Kelly or Woody Allen or, you know, just understanding. You know, if you were listening to the music of N.W.A. in the 90s, then what happened with the Rodney King uh, verdict and the social unrest would not have been a surprise. Um, you know, similarly, uh, you know, the last year's Black Lives Matter protests and George Floyd. And, you know, I, I don't see it as uh, any less important beat than, than City Hall or anything else you care to name. And yet uh, that's the first thing being eroded. But let's face it, journalism's in such sorry state uh, you know, in Chicago, nationwide, everywhere. Uh, and this is how, in part, we have this proliferation of uh, a horrifying some 35 to 45 percent of America thinking that vaccines are a plot to take away their guns and embed them with a microchip. And uh, we're going to see another wave of this damn thing. You know, it, it, it's it's absurd. There's also people who are now arguing the, word, the earth is flat. So what do you tell your music and media class students at Columbia College Chicago these days about journalism, their potential employment, the careers that they might aspire to have? Well, those are two separate questions. Journalism's arguably more important, Charlie, than it ever has been. You know, where they will be able to get paid to do it, uh, I have no better knowledge than any of, uh, you know, my dozens of, of uh, former colleagues who, who just left the Tribune, right? Uh, or those who hang on valiantly at the Sun-Times. Um, I think it's up to them, you know, the 18 to 22 year olds in my desks uh, to invent the new uh, model that will make this sustainable because it doesn't cost anything to go review a show at the Riviera Theater. But you better believe you need resources to do the kind of reporting that Abdon Palish and Mary Mitchell and I did for 15 years on R. Kelly. We needed legal backing. We needed editing. We needed vetting. We needed Everything and the Sun Times gave it to us. I couldn't do that as a freelancer. So, you know, it's up to them. And I hope that when those 22 year olds, uh, figure it out and have their hands and, uh, you know, shout out to Block Club Chicago. I mean, that's doing fantastic work and the tribe, you know, wow. If you're not following both of those the way that you hopefully still subscribe to and support the Tribune and the Sun Times, you're missing out on vital journalism that may just be the future. But, you know, I always hope the 22-year-old, when when she is my age, will take pity on the old man and give me a column once a month, you know. So, Jim, are you working on any books, uh, any new shows? Well, you know, trying to keep sound opinions going is, is, is you know, week to week and uh, a, a tremendous amount of work, but also a huge joy uh, that we're pulling this off. I I had a book, Sheila, that I wanted to uh, to write that got derailed by R. Kelly, and I'm trying to return to it. I always saw the R. Kelly book as side A and side B. 
you know, the song Rock and Roll by the Velvet Underground. Uh, Janie said when she was just five years old, there's nothing happened at all. One fine day she turns on a New York station. Her life was saved by rock and roll. I naively, and not in a Bono save the world way, believe that this music can save you. It is what helped me not to become uh, a fat racist Jersey City cop or prison guard like everybody I went to high school with. I mean, you got you got Jersey City is like Gary, Indiana when I was growing up, you know, a a sad place, a tough place. Uh now it's, you know, all gentrified. But um uh you know, I found I found this music and I found the writing about it. Uh and both of those things uh you know, saved me uh by giving me a much broader view of the world. Um, so I wanted to write that story and pair it with if rock and roll can save your life, can it also ruin it? The R. Kelly story. But nobody wanted the uh, nobody wanted the, the, the side A. They wanted side B. And it came down to two publishers. The one went to the high school in Oak Park uh, that the girl in the videotape attended. And the other publisher, uh, potential publisher who, who ultimately passed on the book, she went to Kenwood Academy with R. Kelly. If it had, you know, two publishers, this is, you got to remember, this is before, uh, I'm trying to sell this book, before um, uh, Surviving R. Kelly broke every viewer t- record for Lifetime TV ever, right? So before TV, uh, you know, and uh, only these two editors who had personal connections to the story. And so I wrote that book and it was miserable and it was hell. And I think I still got PTSD, but I'm trying to go back to the fun book. You know, I love, I love music. The, I love music book. <laughs> I don't know if anybody wants that. I don't think they do, but at least I, I can finish do. it. You know, I think they do. Your enthusiasm is palpable as we talk here. You know, a critic's job is to be critical, of course. Uh, and of course, we know that artists don't always take criticism well. What's your most memorable artist reaction to your criticism? Oh, you know, Billy Corgan uh, banned me from uh, Smashing Pumpkins shows for a stretch there because I dared to uh, give him uh, three and a half stars uh you know, for the first Smashing out Pumpkins of, album. Out of four, right? Out of four, yeah, for yeah. Half, so he, for half a star, he, he banned you. Yeah, he banned me, right? But, you know, the the thing is, uh, they were going to play for a week at the Double Door and perform all the material from Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness before they went in the recording studio. So I'm like, well, you know, that's that's I, I'm not going to let you not letting me into the club stop me. The Double Door had that wall of glass windows on Milwaukee Avenue. So I brought a lawn chair and I sat on, on, at the wall of glass windows was right behind the stage. And I just sat on Milwaukee Avenue. You know, the downside was it, it was February and it was like minus 10. So uh, but, you know, I got the review in. And uh, probably heard better than if I'd been in the club because, you know, hipsters chat the whole time at the double door in those days. So I don't know. There was him. I was always a fat F, you know, and Steve Albini was a fat F. Apparently, these guys um, seem to think uh, that that I had never realized I was fat before they pointed it out. And it's like, you know, gee, wow. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. Uh, so, you know, there, Billy Joel was mad at me because I called him an unrepentant cheese dog. And he, you know, it was opening night of the United Center. I had just reviewed him at the Rosemont Horizon at that time, right? You know, and the lights go down and the fog comes up. And from below the stage on a grand piano, Billy is sitting atop the grand piano. He comes up, right? That's how he started the show, to the uh, uh, music, uh, John Williams score, film music, right? So I reviewed the show in the Sun-Times, the unrepentant cheese dog surfaced to the music from Star Wars, right? So then he's they booked him to play opening night of the United Center, and... Uh, the editor said, we have to go again. And I said, I don't want to see Billy Joel again. And they said, well, yeah, but you're going to review, like, does United Center sound good for a concert? I had to go again. So it sold out, 22,000 people. I'm sitting up in the rafters. And, uh, you know, lights go down, fog comes up. Billy Joel's on top of his grand piano. You know, ambles over to the microphone and says, last time was here, I was here. That fat F. It's always that fat F, right? That fat F at the Sun Times said, I surfaced to the music from uh, Star Wars. Well, that was John Williams' score for the natural, not Star Wars. So F Jim Deere got us. And I'm like, oh. And that's what, you know, and you're sitting there and there's, uh, 
21,999 other people who are not you when here he is uh, saying I should F myself. And I'm like, mm, this is a very strange feeling. <laughs> but, you know, whatever. Right, give me a second here. I'm going into my Spotify playlist now and I'm deleting uh, all Billy Joel songs. Well, yeah, yeah, but he, but, you know, those are awful to begin with, you know, hey, yo, I'm the piano man, you know, oh, my God. So this is Broadway schmaltz, too much Broadway in Billy, always. Are you playing in a band right now? Yeah, I've always played in a band. I've played in bands since I was 13. So, yeah, my current band is called Vortis, V-O-R-T-I-S, and we just, uh, uh, finished a new album. We, we've been playing since like 2000 and we have a couple of records out there. And, you know, it's named after the Vorticist movement. The Vorticists were, um, uh, pre, uh, just post World War One intellectual movement in, uh, in the UK. Uh, James Joyce before he begot, you know, got blind and old and bitter and Wyndham Lewis before he became a, uh, uh, well, he was the designer, um, Ezra Pound before he became the fashion, uh, the fascist. Um, you know, uh, the Vortices said, uh, we should strive in life to perpetuate violent structures of adolescent clarity, which I think in, in 1918 is a very good definition of rock and roll. No matter what age you are, live with the lust for life of a teenager. So, yeah. So we have this new album. We just, we're in the middle of mixing it. It's called uh, The Miasmic Year. It's obviously our pandemic record. Jim, as you're involved in all of these projects, your, your blog seems to have gone fallow. What's your thinking these days about posting your thoughts in text to the web with some frequency? Well, I did the blog uh, after the Sun Times. I did the blog uh, for WBEZ for seven years, and uh, again, I think it was a penny wise, pound foolish decision that it wasn't worth paying me uh, the pittance that I got. I, I was very proud of breaking some important stories on the blog. You know, the reason I'm banned for life from Lollapalooza is, uh, you know, they were not paying the amusement tax that every other uh, entertainment uh, venue from the size of Shuba's up to uh, the Allstate Arena have to pay. And I hammered away on that for a good two years and cost them seven and a half million dollars a year. So so I became persona non grata. I, I, I wrote a lot about the Congress Theater and the notoriously unsafe conditions there. Anyway, uh, that wasn't worth uh, $700 a month. So there went the blog. I don't, you know, Charlie, I'm spoiled, right? I mean, I would rather uh, a couple of times a year pitch the New Yorker uh, now and say, are you interested in a story about, you know, the use of music in Quentin Tarantino's Charles Manson movie and how it's like so wrong compared to Manson's music? Uh, and then they say yes. And then you're like in the New Yorker and all my professor colleagues at Columbia are really impressed. <laughs> I guess I'm saying I'm, I'm enough, although I am slightly to the left of Noam Chomsky, I'm enough of a capitalist to like to get paid for my work. So I, I don't necessarily want to blog for free. It's time for final thoughts, Charlie. I wish Jim would blog more. Your final thoughts, Sheila? R. Kelly's I Believe I Can Fly was theme song for my son's 1997 graduation from his North Carolina high school. And I can't help but think about that as I think about all of Kelly's accusers who are still waiting for their cases to wind their way through the court system. They've already been waiting more than 20 years too long. Yeah, well, you know, Sheila, to, uh, to a woman, those of whom I've, I've spoken to since, uh, since he was indicted, arrested two years ago, I mean, they all have the same reaction. It's, it's too little, too late. I think the biggest uh, philosophical question that any of us who care passionately about the arts are going to face uh, is, uh, can we truly separate the art from the artist? And I think that most times we can, because some very despicable people make some very brilliant art. But there are exceptions. When Woody Allen, uh, you know, credibly accused 
by Dylan Farrow, his daughter, and her brother Ronan, and, you know, her mom, Mia Farrow, uh, of sexual abuse, uh, her, her dad. Uh, you know, how can we watch Manhattan again, which is the story of a 45, 48-year-old comedian pursuing a high school girl? for sex. Uh, how can we listen to Trapped in the Closet and Sex in the Kitchen and Ignition Remix? I want to stick my car in my key in your ignition, baby. How can we listen to that for pleasure when we know that Kelly is singing about a vision of hedonism that says, I will take my pleasure wherever I desire, and I have no concern for the health and well-being of my possibly underage partner. Um, yeah, so this, this is, you know, uh, Picasso was a jerk, treated women badly. I, you know, I, I really kind of like that ugly statue downtown, right? Um, you know, but there are exceptions, and a lot of them are in pop culture, and I think we're going to be wrestling with this for some time. You know, Michael Jackson, God, the world's going to be a a worse place if I can't enjoy Off the Wall or the music of the Jackson 5 anymore. However, the last two albums of his career, which were really bad, History and Invincible, are full of songs protesting his innocence. You're trying to crucify me like you crucified the Lord, media. Do your job. And taking out, uh, by name, the Santa Barbara County uh, DA who charged him and, and lost uh, for sex with underage boys. And, you know, those accusations are entirely credible. Uh, you know, thankfully, the two rotten albums where he's singing about them you know, we can write those out of the catalog. I, I would hate to stop listening to Off the Wall, but I don't know. This is a big question that we've all got to wrestle with. And I don't think there's a right and a wrong because there's never a right and a wrong in art. There's just, you know, uh, you not thinking about it. That's the only thing that's wrong. If you have your answer and say, I can still get pleasure from I Believe I Can Fly, or Step in the Name of Love was my wedding song. I, I, it is my song more than it is Kelly's. I'm not going to say you're wrong. I, I can't listen to it, and, and neither can many of those women that I talk to. So, uh, Jim, I know, I know you have your drums close at hand because from what I understand, you're never far from them. Can you drum us out? I will. Uh, I will make some. No you know, I'm not a musician, Charlie. I'm merely a drummer. But I will. Uh, I will make some noise if you'd like me to. I would I'm be gonna honored. Break, I'm going to break your podcast now. I'm telling you. I would be honored. Our guest on this edition of Chicago Media Talks, recorded live on Clubhouse, July nineteenth, twenty twenty one, has been journalist Jim DeRogatis. You can reach Jim on the web at jimdero.com. That's J I M D E R O. You can find Sheila Solomon at Sheila at Rivet360.com. And I'm Charlie Myerson. Join me for a roundup of the news at 10 weekday mornings at ChicagoPublicSquare.com. For Sheila Solomon, producer Jesse Batend, and everyone at Rivet360, thanks for listening. If you're in the mood for more Rivet podcasts, we recommend Where I Stay. It's an eight-part documentary that tells the story of a woman who was homeless for 20 years, beginning at the age of 12. But for the 20 years that she was homeless, she never lived on the street. Join Angelica on her story of survival as she pretends to be people that she isn't and gets close to people that she probably shouldn't, all to find a place to stay. You can listen to Where I Stay wherever you get your podcasts. Rivet 360 makes podcasting easy. Want help with your podcast? Visit rivet360.com.